you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22. We continue our systematic exposition through the book of Acts. We'll read only the first 29 verses today. Acts 22, verse 1. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. When they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prison, as also the high priest and all the council of elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. But it happened that as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, get up and go on into Damascus. And there you will be told all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And a certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law, and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time, I looked at him and he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Verse 17, it happened while I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple. It happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand 
that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching the coats of those who were slaying him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Verse 22, they listened to him up to this statement. And then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought back to the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging, that is by torture, so that he might find out what reason, uh, the reason why they were shouting against him that way. But when they stretched him out, Paul said to the centurion, who was standing by. Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. And the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, but I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman because he had put him in chains. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word to the sanctification of the saints to the salvation of sinners. We pray that your Holy Spirit would work in power among us now. Amen. When we hear the word apology in our language, in our everyday vernacular today, it usually means that we are expressing regret for something, that we're expressing regret for a wrong done, that an apology we think of is, is shame and remorse for a failure, for bad judgment, or for a wrong action. We want to use the word apology today, but we want to use it under a different definition. There is another use another definition for this word apology that we don't hear very often today, but we hear it in theological discussions and in religious circles. We hear the word apology and related words. When we use it in this way, this new definition or, or this different definition, it means to give a reasoned argument or to give a justification. You probably know the word apologetics, which is an area of study and a discipline providing reason and justifications for what one believes. An apologist is one who works in the area of apologetics. And an apology is the argument, the justification, 
the reason, the answer that is given for why someone believes what they believe and why they live in the way that they live. Today, as we consider these verses of scripture, we find here Paul's apology. I titled the sermon today simply Paul's Apology. In chapter 21, we left off with Paul being placed under arrest, bound by the Romans amidst an uproar in Jerusalem. These Jews that were trying to kill Paul by beating him to death. And after Paul was seized by the Romans and carried to the top of the stairs, he asked permission to speak and permission was granted. And then chapter 22 begins and we open here with Paul's Apology. The crowd is angered toward Paul. The anger is not organized. It is not reason. There's confusion in this angry mob. One thing is shouted and then another thing is shouted. The, the commander of the Roman army could not figure out, could not decipher from the crowd what the problem was. And Paul asked to speak. I don't know Paul's motives. We're not given Paul's motives. I don't know if he had any hope or any idea that he might speak, that he might explain things publicly. Then the misunderstanding would be cleared up and everything would calm down. Perhaps he had that idea or maybe he didn't think it would calm things down. He just felt like they needed to hear what he had to say. But it's clear as we see Paul's apology that this is not the kind of apology that expresses regret. Paul is not here acknowledging wrongdoing. He is not expressing regret for something that he has done or something that he has said. But this is his reason. I remember early in pastoral ministry. I was teaching a group class to a group of men at a church and in teaching the truth of scripture, I unintentionally angered some of them. Now, if you know me, you're not surprised by that, <laughs> but I unintentionally angered some. And I, I thought I, I probably hadn't been clear enough in presenting the doctrines and presenting the the things that I was teaching. So I decided as the class was dismissed and as we moved to the auditorium for the preaching time, I decided that I would change the, the preaching text and I would preach the same text that I had just taught. But now I'll be much more clear and I'll take this extra time to explain things so that there will be no more anger. Some of you are getting ahead of me. I didn't change my position, but I gave an apology. I wanted to be more clear. And what I found out at the end of that sermon was that the problem was not in my communication of the doctrines. The problem was that those men hated those doctrines. I gave an apology. I gave a reasoned argument, but instead of calm, instead of settling things down, it poured fuel on the flames. And that's how I see 
Paul's apology here. He comes for whatever reason to say, let me give you this apology. He was not expressing regret. He may have thought that a clear explanation would calm the crowd, or perhaps he simply wanted them to be united and certain on why they wanted to kill him. Whatever his reason, here in our text, Paul gives his apology. For those who have been here for the systematic exposition of the book of Acts, most of the things that Paul says here are familiar to us. But to those who were listening as he spoke these words, this is new information for them. Remember the last words of chapter 21, we read Paul standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hands, and there was a great hush. And he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect. Paul has the attention of the mob, and we should note here that much of what Paul says would be readily and gladly received by these people. Verse 2 tells us that he spoke to them in this Hebrew dialect, probably Aramaic. And they became, there already was a great hush. They became even more quiet. And Paul gives his apology to this attentive crowd. The apology I've divided in three sections. The introduction where Paul tells who he is. He gives his background, his resume or his CV if you will. Then he speaks of his conversion on the road to Damascus. And then finally, he speaks of his commission to apostolic ministry. First, the introduction. It's not exactly like Paul is introducing himself as a stranger. Paul would have been pretty well known. It's likely that most of those who were there in the crowd trying to kill Paul would have at least known him by reputation and some knew him personally. The reputation that they would have known, Paul reiterates for them. Verse 3, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia. Brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers. Paul was born in Tarsus and was probably sent to Jerusalem to be educated at a very young age. At a very young age to move away from mom and dad. It wasn't like he was an infant, but this was a very young age to be moving away from his parents. Probably 10 to 12 years old. And we find out in the next chapter that Paul had family in Jerusalem, a sister and a nephew. So it seems reasonable that Paul's older sister may have already lived in Jerusalem when he was a child and that he came at the age of 10 to 12 years old to live with her, his older sister, so that he would have the best education under Gamaliel. Paul mentions in verse three that he was zealous for God just as you all are today. During the time when Paul was killing Christians, brutally persecuting the church, he would have said that he was acting in obedient service to God. We'll see that again next week. He, he would have said that he was acting while persecuting the church in service to God. And here he acknowledges 
that these people in the crowd are thinking the same way. That in beating and trying to kill Paul, they believe themselves to be servants of God. In truth, Paul was much more zealous than they were. And he tells them as much we see in verse 4. I was persecuting this way, and the way is a, is a name or a nickname for the followers of Christ. I persecuted this way to the death, bringing and putting both men and women into prison. And the high priest and the council can testify. No respecter of gender, both men and women thrown into prison. Fathers, as well as mothers, taken from their children by Paul. And he points out that the elders can testify that this was true. But in verse 6, he speaks of his conversion. But it happened as I was on my way, approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light, a brilliant light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. Paul on the road to Damascus was apprehended by Jesus Christ as he traveled down that road. And since he was apprehended by Christ, since that time, Paul is not fearful of being arrested by Jews or by Romans or any other human authority. He quite literally encountered God that day. He had been persecuting men and women. Anyone who identified as Christian, anyone who would be known as people of the way. But on the road to Damascus, they are lying in the dirt, being knocked down, knocked off his horse. Paul learned something about the church of Jesus. Verse 7, he says, I, I heard, I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. Paul, thinking he was serving God, would have said, I'm persecuting the way. I'm persecuting the Christians. I'm persecuting the disciples of Jesus. But here on the road, Jesus informed Paul that this persecution was actually toward Jesus himself. Paul, you're persecuting me. Jesus so closely identifies himself with his church. That he says, you're persecuting me. I wonder how many of us would do well to remember this fact. When we are tempted to say something against Christ's church. Or to ignore Christ's church. Or to neglect the church of Jesus Christ. Certainly there's room for criticism when the church abandons Christ or denies his word. But how often do we criticize, ignore, neglect Christ by doing the same to his church? 
verse 9, we find that those who were with Paul on the road to Damascus saw the light but did not hear, did not understand the, the voice. They heard a noise. And, and we find this because this, this testimony of Paul's conversion is found in three places. We find it in Acts 9, here in Acts 22, and in Acts 26. And when we put those things together and we find that they heard something, but they could not comprehend what was being said. How many times had Paul wondered, why couldn't they also hear? I mean, you think about it. How much trouble that might have saved Paul if they had all heard and understand. You think about that. Maybe Paul wondered that as well. But this day, standing at the top of these stairs, giving his testimony to this crowd, Paul is appointed to speak to them. Paul is appointed to be the mouthpiece speaking the gospel of Jesus Christ to these Jews. That day, he was the witness. Those men on the road to Damascus did not hear the voice, but in this day, Paul speaks, and Paul is the witness for Jesus Christ to that crowd. I find it interesting that Paul is told that he would be a witness for Christ to all. And then he brings up Stephen, and maybe as we read this text, maybe your Bible said, Stephen, your witness, God's witness. And the word there is the word for martyr. Stephen was a witness for Christ and he gave his life. Paul is a witness for Christ and he too would die for the cause of the gospel. In verse 12, we find this man, Ananias, who came. And Ananias would be, as the Jews hear this story, Ananias would be a man respected, a man that would be known to be devout, spoken well of by all those who lived there. And we see that Paul has been stricken blind by this brilliant light and guided by the hand leading him around uh, or leading him into Damascus by the hand. Paul speaks of this blindness. It may very well be that this temporary blindness was pointing to the blindness that would be on the Jews until the Gentiles had the fullness of the gospel. The Jews were blinded. Paul speaks of this blindness, but then he speaks of this miraculous healing. A blind man, Saul of Tarsus, having his sight restored. And for those listening, this would be compelling. This would be an important part of Paul's reason, an important part of his apology. Who can restore sight to blind eyes? Except God, who can do this? Surely, if what Paul is speaking is true, surely God was affirming Paul's calling and Paul's ministry and Paul's work. Surely this miraculous healing of blindness would 
change the hearts and minds of that crowd. But we must remember that Jesus himself, when he was on earth, when he walked the streets of this same city, Jesus healed blind eyes. And the heart of sinful men was so darkened that they refused to believe in him. Light had come into the world and anyone who would look to Jesus and believe in him would be saved. But men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And in the same way, Paul's eyes receiving sight was not enough to turn the hearts of these men. Paul had given his background an introduction. He had spoken of his conversion. And thirdly, Paul tells the crowd that after this miraculous healing of his blindness, he is commissioned for apostolic ministry. Verse 14, he says, the God of our fathers, this is Ananias speaking to him, the God of our fathers has appointed to you to know his will and to see the righteous one on the road to Damascus, he saw Christ. And to hear an utterance from his mouth on the road to Damascus, he heard the voice of Christ. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now, why do you delay? Get up, be baptized, wash away your sins. This is not indicating that baptism will wash away sin. But this is an indication. Get up, be baptized because your sins have been forgiven. Paul's apology, his reasoning is that God appointed him for apostolic ministry, to know God's will, to see Jesus, to hear from his mouth, and then to be a witness for Christ as Paul preached, as he taught, as he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was and still is a witness for Jesus Christ. Paul went back to Jerusalem there to be told he couldn't stay. The Jews of that city would not accept him now that he was a Christian. Now this is years later and they still are not accepting him. Verse 22, after Paul gives this apology, verse 22 tells us that the crowd listens to a certain point, to a certain point, up to this last statement. They listened, there was calmness, there was quiet, there was a hush until he got to this last part and then they became indignant. Their anger swelled once again and became out of control. What was it that Paul said that was so offensive? What was it that made them say, that's enough? One commentator suggested that Paul said one word too much. He went one word too far. He said the word Gentiles. I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Those Jews believed that the God they worshipped would never be gracious and merciful to Gentiles. 
So they respond. Listening to him up to that statement, they raised their voices, verse 22 says, and said, away with this fellow from the earth. He should not be allowed to live. They're throwing off their cloaks. They're tossing dust into the air. Their reaction, their reaction reveals the sinful pride in their heart. Call it nationalism. They would have called it religious zeal. But it was really culturalism or, or nationalism. Whatever you would call it, it is sinful pride of the heart that glares as we see this crowd. As we come to the close of our text, Paul is about to be beaten by the Romans. He was just being beaten by the Jews. Now he's about to be beaten by the Romans. And he mentions his Roman citizenship. And that saves him from torture. This beating by the Romans would have been awful. I'd like for us to draw from this text some applications for our hearts and our minds today. Firstly, let us see that Paul uses the advantage of his citizenship without any reservation, without any sinfulness. Some would tell us that Christians should never have any connection and never have any dealing with the government, with governing authorities, with the, the, the systems of the world. They would say that Christians should never serve in the military. The Christians should never hold public office. Even some would say Christians should never vote. But Paul took advantage of his citizenship. And Christians, we should as well. Christians can and some ought to serve in the military. Christians can and some ought to run for and hold public office and to serve the public in that way. Christians can and ought to vote and to be involved in our government as we have the right and we can do so as citizens. Paul took advantage of his citizenship and Christians, we should too. Secondly, let us observe the hard-heartedness of the crowd as they reject Christ Jesus and his ministry. They may not have ever realized that moment when their final opportunity came to repent of their sins and to believe in Jesus Christ. But their hard-heartedness shows forth some of you, some of you come to church. You listen to the word preached. You hear the gospel presented and you resist. Maybe not outwardly. Maybe no one can see it, but you inwardly resist. You say in your heart to the Savior, no. Perhaps you're too much in love with your sin. 
Maybe it's your pride that won't let you step off the throne and humble yourself before Christ. Beloved, consider these hard-hearted men of Jerusalem. Swallow your pride. Submit yourself to Christ Jesus, lest you wait too late. Thirdly, note Paul's boldness. Paul's boldness. Here, Paul stands, as it were, between a rock and a hard place. On the one side, he has a crowd who was just trying to beat him to death. And on the other side, he has the Roman soldiers who would who have arrested him and were about to, shall we say, interrogate. They were about to interrogate him with beatings, strapping and stretching him to be beaten. He stands here alone. No friend in sight. Many men would find a way or try to find a way to placate one side or the other. To, to satisfy one enemy or the other. How many of us would try to say something that would remove the threat on one side or the other? Paul, Paul stood there knowing the Jewish mind. He knew their nationalism. He knew their religion well. Probably better than some of them. Paul, being an excellent communicator, to win them over could have been an easy task. Just change your story. Just change your line. And get out of this trouble. But Paul stood here still in the custody of the Roman soldiers, stood before a crowd still bloodthirsty, and he proclaimed Jesus Christ as his Savior. He declared the gospel. He said Jesus is his Lord and his God. Paul was bold. Some of you are afraid that someone at work will find out you're a Christian. You're scared someone will out you as a churchgoer. You're too timid to speak up for Jesus among your friends. It's a tough world out there. I can't just go out there and be bold. But we forget that if we're ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of us. We see Paul's boldness. Paul standing here echoes the sentiment of Job, I believe. Though, though I stand here surrounded by enemies on every side. Though you have laid hold of me, and, and this commander that is spoken of here would have been a captain of, of a thousand. And then there are centurions spoken of that would have been over a hundred. We don't know how many soldiers were there, but Paul stands here alone, surrounded 
without any ability to free himself physically. Though these wanted to slay him, still he trusts in Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to the Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And here he declared boldly to those Jews who sought to kill him and to those Gentiles who had him bound, Jesus saves We see that Paul used his citizenship, the advantages of his citizenship. We observe the hard-heartedness of the crowd. We note Paul's boldness. And then finally, we remember Paul's testimony. Paul was the worst kind of sinner. I mean, you may not think about that often because we think of Paul as a Christian. We think of the apostle Paul. But Paul, when he was Saul, was the worst kind of sinner. He, he did such heinous deeds and did them in the name of God, which makes it worse. But this sinner found grace and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Even as he hated Jesus and persecuted the way, Jesus Loved him and saved him. Beloved, your, your sin is not exactly like Paul's sin. But your sin requires the same redeeming blood of Jesus. The same grace and mercy. That's what you need to be saved. Jesus' power. Jesus' saving Power has not one bit diminished from the road to Damascus to this place right here, right now, today. Jesus is still mighty to save. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Don't wait. You don't, in, in order to be saved, you don't have to have a meeting with the pastors. Now, if you want to meet with Pastor Brent or with me, we'd be more than happy to meet with you. But you don't need us to be saved. You need Jesus. Yeah. Simply turn from your sin and turn to Christ. Receive the gift of salvation planned and purposed by the Father, accomplished and completed by Jesus the Son, and now applied to your heart today if you will repent and believe on Him by the Holy Spirit. Father in heaven, we thank you for the great grace and mercy that you showed to that terrible sinner on the road to Damascus. And we pray that you would show that same saving grace to the terrible sinner here today. You have saved sinful men and women from age to age, and we know that you are still saving. 
God, we ask for you to work through your word and your spirit to bring sinners to repentance. Pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.